Welcome to Weird Sauce, a podcast about formulas. In these conversations, I intend to rethink with you the rhythms of our lives. From the exceptional to the routine, I wander into the patterns, the alchemy of experiences, good and bad, from scientists to high achievers. Life is not a long, quiet river, so follow me upstream into the extraordinary, the storms, the mishaps, the components that may inspire you today and tomorrow. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Your health is your responsibility and that of your physician. Always seek advice from your physician before choosing any lifestyle interventions you may have heard in this podcast. Dr. Mubin Syed, welcome to Weird Sauce, and thank you so much for making time for us uh, in your location, I believe, in the United States. And uh, welcome to the podcast uh, that is originally from Singapore, but although I'm currently in the UK. And could you kindly introduce yourself for this very small audience that doesn't already know you and your big uh, output in uh, on YouTube? So, Florence, thank you very much for having me. Uh, my name is Dr. Mobin Sayed. I am an educator and a co-founder of an organization called Dr. Bean Corp. We are based here in the U.S. I am based in California. And thank you very much. It is, I believe, midnight on your side and almost midday here. So thank you for accommodating for this time. And uh, once again, thank you for having me. Most welcome. I've been looking forward to this for a very long time after having uh, invited Robert Lustig, Dr. Robert Lustig, which was an amazing starting to the podcast. I was very much looking forward to having you as uh, you like to introduce some of the rock stars that you've had on your own show. And I would uh, reflect that onto you today for, for my part. So for those of um, the audience that are not so familiar with both the work that you do on medical education, on your uh, website, and the work that you most recently for the past, I would say, couple of years, sadly, that this pandemic has now been with us. Uh, I've done a bit more focus on um, pandemic-related issues in terms of COVID-19. Uh, share with us what is it that you primarily are uh, looking at within the medical education um, goal and your, the goals with, with your, your website, and also specifically what led you to have a much more involved role within the the months that unfolded uh, in front of us in the past uh, 20 to 24 months now. Thank you, Florence. And this is a question I think I can continue to talk about this for hours. So I'll try to be as brief and to the point as possible. The When we started uh, com, and even before, when I was in second year medical college, I used to, at that time, teach other students or friends to earn my fee. So I used to teach for earning. So that is how I started teaching. And then slowly, a concept became very important to me, and that was clarity of a medical concept. The clarity with which it dawns in our mind for a healthcare professional is very important because that is what they are going to look at when they are going to treat their patient. And so clear concepts are very important. So as I continued to start teaching, and then I did some software engineering as well, this was the paramount thing for me. I kept observing from other healthcare workers as well. Wherever there is a concept that is not clear, that is not visualizable for a healthcare professional, there usually will be a challenge in applying it. So what I did was I took a risk of, uh, <laughs> of presenting serious medical concept, which when present in a book will become very difficult to read because of the jargon and because of the concepts and because of the verbiage and the way it is narrated. I took them, simplified them, made them more cartoony, make them more accessible, make them more illustrated. I used to think that for all of us, medical professionals, med medical students, the medical knowledge should be as if we are reading a children's book and it should be so clear and so visualizable that we read a paragraph and here is the illustration and it just, 
becomes vividly clear. So I took a risk on teaching that way. Although in some medical fields or from some medical groups and school of thoughts, they believe that what I'm doing is simplifying it so much that it is not at a high enough level. At the same time, I get so many comments from specialists even to say, I learned about this concept in my medical school. And after looking at your illustration is when it became clear to me. And similarly, I get so many comments from teachers that say that when we have to explain something to our students, we go and look for that concept in your teaching to see how do you explain it. So this was the background to the drbean.com's uh, approach. Now, in context of the pandemic, the, my philosophy always had been with the teaching that we should clear the concepts, we should make it clear so that the patient outcomes become better. So that a doctor or a nurse or a healthcare worker has better application of the knowledge and patient is the beneficiary. So when the pandemic started, it became the time to prove what we had been talking about and that is working for the patient outcomes. So we as a team, as a company decided that we would start doing these free educational uh, sessions. We will make knowledge accessible. The reason for that was that the knowledge was being pursued by everyone in the world. Everyone. We all got stuck. Everyone in the world got stuck with the COVID. So everyone was looking for information. They were trying to understand what it is. It was not just a doctor's duty or a nurse duty or healthcare worker's duty. And so I think that concept of illustrating the medical concepts became such valuable asset for, for all of us, including myself. So that is how it evolved. And now it has been about two years. We have been available every day, twice a day, except weekends. And so there are, I think, more than a thousand lectures that we have done about COVID, more than 30,000 illustrations that we have done and more than 10,000 studies that we have, uh, you know, researched and conveyed. So that is what has been happening. So that's an enormous um, endeavor. And I, and I remember thinking when I came across your first video, which was probably right about 22 months ago, uh, looking for information on a scientifically neutral ground where you could listen to something without the sense that somebody was trying to sell you an outcome from the start. And I thought at the time, right, so this is actually perfect because there is the data and then there is the illustration in case you need a bridge over from the intellectual side that you may or may not have or the jargon that you may or may not have. And then I remember thinking uh, a few months later you started, or maybe that was just me and YouTube and Singapore because we get things at a different rate depending on the channel subscription and so on. But then you started interviewing doctors and clinicians and people from around the world. And I discovered Dr. Cherry, which was also on, on my podcast. I discovered a lot of clinicians that probably I would never have come across and, and many other people either, Paul Merrick and Dr. Pierre Corey and so on. And the role that you played, I'm sure you've heard it from other people, but I wanted to say that to you is like a salvation of intellect, a salvation of the brain for me anyway. And I, I don't know what other people's experiences because it was just allowed to, we were allowed to think as scientists, as medical people without being ostracized one way or the other. And there was this sense of we all out here to find out what's going on. And for that hour or the hour and a half, it was allowed. And then we could move on and think, oh, that's open up other doors. So I'm curious, what was it for you realizing as you were going through at the same time than us in real time, you didn't have the end in sight. You were just going through the pandemic just like we were. What was it like for you to go from the sense of a medical educator to almost like a, a network organizer, gladiator of 
intellectual sources while also having to sift through it, given all the pressure that started building up. And I'm guessing the pressure got higher and higher over time. So I'm very curious, what was the human experience that you went through and the medical experience that you went through? Beautiful question. Um, I am loving it. I'm loving being your guest here. I am loving the questions. So when I started, I very quickly realized that even the diagrams that I was doing and I was very, very proud of that these are illustrated and easy, it still lacked polish. And I felt that that lack of polish is still a barrier between me and the listener or between the information and the receiver. And I am the reason that that barrier is present because I'm not good enough in presenting it. So the first step in my evolution that occurred, and you can see that two years earlier videos versus today's videos, that I started learning to draw. And all these books are over here are drawing books. And I started learning to draw and I started doing calligraphic handwritings and so on, just so that I can become as invisible to the listener as possible. At the same time, there was one more thing, my accent. Many people complain that, hey, your accent is such that we sometimes get stuck in the accent and not able to receive the message. So I did whatever I could, humanly possible, whatever things I could figure out. For example, I say V in a different way and W in a different way and so on. So I started working on that. Again, the, the, the attempt, the effort was that is there a possibility that I become as neutral to the listener as if they're reading from a book? And so they're not saying this is Mubeen presenting. They just know this, this is an illustrated book and which is speaking and talking and has expressions. Then another thing that became very evident to me was that I was great at illustrating and presenting mechanisms, leaving the field open for thoughts to bloom and, and, and you know, um, imagination to have its wings. But at the same time, the practical application of it, at the same time, the application from other ways of thinking about this uh, information was absent from me because I was one person. So that is when I started looking for those who were breaking ground in this area because we were all, the whole world, 7 billion and more plus people, we were all stuck in this. We were all thinking about it. We all had ideas. And I have noticed that one or two people become the leaders and not, they don't plan that I'm going to be a leader. They don't set out from their home to say, today I will go and become a leader. But they are the ones who decide that I'm going to serve. People need me. Something needs me. I'm going to go and serve. And then they become the leaders because their service becomes valuable and more service is needed. So I started seeing people around me who were doing those services. And I wanted to bring them to the audience as well. So that once again was an effort to say, if Mubin is not there, but this audience is present and they need to understand from other perspectives as well. Do they need to go to various places, places and curate that? Or can I bring these guests here? My challenge actually became that not everybody would agree to come on. I was a small channel, I think 130,000 subscribers, uh, 1.7 million views or so, meaning a small voice. So when we'll reach out, for example, I reached out to Fauci and he refused. He simply said, I'm too busy. And I saw him going to the other channels as well, but he would not come in here. And I understood that we were a small voice, so he didn't really care. Similarly, I reached out to a bunch of other doctors and they, some would not even res respond. However, that intent was there. So fortunately, one after the other, we continue to get rock stars. And as one would come in, then another would agree. And then a time came when folks sent me the messages to say, could I be on your show? 
So this is how this whole structure evolved. And then at one point, my role started becoming more of prepare the audience to be able to accept the messages which may be coming from others, not just me. So that is how this whole thing is operating at this time. My hope is that this has added value. It has added, at this time, the value is how do we protect ourselves? How do we lead a good life during this whole process? And hopefully th this would be useful afterwards as well, after the pandemic. After the pandemic, if there is such a time. Um, yes. yes. So the, the question that I'm, I'm struck by now is that I have, I think last week, and we're now at the end of uh, November 2021, I was struck by watching your late, one of your latest uh, interview of Dr. Paul Merrick, who seems to have, um, who seems to be facing tremendous uh, legal mounts. And uh, you were sharing as well that perhaps you were going to go down in some version and another with some legal recourse as well. And so my question is, since this is happening, we have a window into what's happening in the United States. Um, and in, in Singapore, our position has been much more muted, uh, at least from the healthcare standpoint. We, we have not publicly have statement from physician of about COVID-19 apart from the mantra that we're hearing around, which, um, you know, about the way that we're going to get out of this, if we are going to get out of this. And so my question is, are we not also right now, after 22 months of this, in a fracture of some kind that is much bigger than the pandemic and how we manage it and whether or not things will be better or how fast they will get better and by what means. So I'm very, very concerned that we are in fact at a fracture, that medical education seems to have somehow been captured by different interests. And it's not our point here to argue what interests in details, but it seems to be fractured and that similarly the practice of medicine seems to be at a turning point. And so I wanted to hear from you, what are your fears and your hope that maybe some good thing could kind of come out of this horrendous situation that we are in, or that in fact you are afraid of some things that you want to talk about? Absolutely. So beautiful questions. Uh, this question has two parts. One is the, what are the good things that are coming out of it? And then what are the not so pleasant outcomes and what may be the hope for future. So I'm going to start with the good things. As much as this pandemic has really shaken us, humanity, damaged us so severely that we never had this wholesale damage before in front of our eyes while trying to uh, fix this for two years, all the humanity. I don't think there is anybody in the world who could claim that I do something else and I don't care for COVID on a daily basis. There is COVID somewhere in our minds every day. And the progress that occurred during this time in common people's mind about medicine and I'm using the common people from a medical point of view that there are professionals and then there are not professionals. I believe that not professionals have become so much aware of the mechanisms of how medicine works, what are the things about medicine, what are random, randomized control trials, what are p-values. I remember I had Dr. Pierre Corey with me and he was talking about a study and one of the cool bean in the comment from the comment said, this does not have a good p-value. So how do you explain that? And I was, I was struck that we have reached as humanity that point that where we are having that discourse in public and pub public is able to join in. That has generally, in my opinion, improved 
the overall status of the medical information. And now healthcare workers will have to go a step up. They will have to figure out how do they become even better than where they are because where they are now, the public is reaching that place by themselves. So it's not only being a medical, you know, Googling for medical things anymore. People now understand them as well. The second interesting part is that this pandemic has pushed us in digital media, electronic media, digital communications, staying connected in a different way about 10 years ahead. Remote medicine, remote interactions. Yes, the physical interaction became less and that would, we would have to cover that. We'll have to figure that out. How do we go back to it? But that push that happened brought us 10 years ahead. So I think these are great successes and there are tremendously more successes. For example, AI was used to figure out what drugs can attack, attack the, uh, the virus. For example, the process of testing various drugs in vitro and then coming out and say this may be useful, that was a new thing. We didn't do it for many other diseases. For example, there is a very common um, disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, that happens after the viruses or we say idiopathic, sometimes we don't know why it happens, or the chronic Lyme or such chronic diseases. There is so much research done now in the name of SARS-CoV-2 that a lot of that research knowledge and methods and processes and learnings are going to spill over to start fixing and finding cures for those diseases as well. So we have been propelled forward at a high cost. The human cost of it is tremendous, but we are prepared for it. On the flip side, the not so great parts, and we could call them as growing pains, or we could call them, as I say sometimes over here, to some people become upset with that, that we aired, medical field aired its laundry in front of the whole world. And came out not so pleasantly to the people. And one of the things I used to say, and it became evident with this pandemic, I used to say, for example, in the US, we have streamlined our processes, medical processes. We have created bureaucracy around that. We have created red ribbons around that. We have created guardrails around that. We have created insurance structures, communication structures, influence structures, and so on. And anybody who falls out of that mainstream, they become a victim of the system as well. But that used to be rarity. And this society, which I am part of, we were less caring for what is happening to someone who was not in the mainstream. For example, let's say somebody... If I get joint pain, I can go to the doctor and get my test done and get my medicines and get support. But if I get to have a, a organ replacement or I have a bunch of other diseases with organ transplant needed, and all of a sudden I might actually be allowed to die because I may not be, you know, eligible for the organ. So we saw the same methods applied to SARS-CoV-2 pandemic as well. And what I saw to my disappointment is that the medical machinery ran the same way, but tried to just run faster and a little lazy by saying, let's just bring in vaccines and that would solve everything. And so that chance to evolve and have discourse and have more not mainstream activities to be added to the mainstream and become flexible, that didn't happen. We didn't become as a medical community an open community, which became open for ideas. Imagine 500 years ago when medical sciences had not evolved so much. And if there was a pandemic, people would be figuring it out together. They'll be saying, how do we do it? And somebody would say, I think this plant would work. And somebody else would say, I think that this little herb would work. And then they would work and try to figure it out. 
we did not allow that to happen. And that, I think, was a big detriment of our system's structure. We didn't have, I used to say a lot, we didn't have flexibilities built into the system to accommodate at this exceptional time. We didn't become exceptional. Other than saying, here is a vaccine, we invented it, so yes, we'll save the whole world. But we were not exceptional. The result of that became people got divided and there became groups and the groups started attacking each other. Some became pro-vaccines and other became anti-vaccines and then some said, hey, I am not an anti-vaccine or pro-vaccine. I'm a vaccine hesitant. Some became pro-ivermectin. Some became pro-mask. Some became anti-mask. So the whole structure brought people into groups and then they started seeking reasons to entrench in those places instead of figuring out how do we accommodate and figure out how to win together. I think that was the lack of leadership. I see it every single time. It's the leader who always decides and creates a theme in the community and the community starts going that way. When, when a teacher comes in the class, if teacher says, you know, the topic I'm going to discuss today, I don't really like this topic. It's a difficult topic. You would see that the whole class would feel that it is a difficult topic. If teacher comes in and says, I'm going to discuss this thing and I really love it, you would see that the whole class would say we love it too. So that leadership was absent. There was no dialogue. There was no discourse. And now when the at the leadership level, dialogue and discourse was not present, then below those levels, dialogues and discourses were also becoming a problem. And that is what you saw. I was seeing a doctor yesterday. She was saying that, hey, I used to, uh, patients used to have ivermectin plus monoclonal antibodies. And she is banned from a hospital. Dr. Uh, Paul Merrick banned from a hospital. I was actually reading Mary Beth Pfeiffer's uh, article just before this discussion where a judge was approached to offer ivermectin to a patient. And after all the arguments, she writes, that judge said, so what is the downside? And that is where the whole thing started becoming un unraveling because what is the downside to the ivermectin? What is the side effect that's going to happen? The patient is already dying. What is now going to happen? So that discourse became very poisonous. People started punishing others. In my own case, I think six or seven attempts at various levels of intensities of bad, including, including people asking me to debate. And if I don't debate, then trying to come to my home and attack me or going and, and uh, making complaints about me or trying to shut down my business or going and complaining about my house. And there are just so many. And I still feel that at the end of the day, everybody who's doing these things thinks that I am doing a favor to this society by stopping this person's message. So that openness to dialogue which is the, when I came to US, I read a statement. I don't know which philosopher was it, but that person had written that disputational dialogue in the Western society is the key to reach the truth. I'm paraphrasing. And I really loved it. I thought that even if we fight here about something, we disagree and we, we content about things, we would still reach the truth. And I think that part is sorely missing and that is a not so uh, happy part of this all. And, and so to continue with this, um, since this is a dynamic um, issue and we're not out of it, not socially, not in terms of healthcare, not in terms of the political ramification to this, and now even the digitalization to some of these vaccine mandates, we certainly... Um, in Singapore, we've had 
by all but name a vaccine mandate now and and a vaccination um, obligation for the past three months, uh, so much so that if you want uh, double vaccinated, uh, which was the local app testifying it and checked uh, at any entrance of malls or coffee shops or restaurants, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't go anywhere. Um, so what I'm what I'm wondering is in this dynamic um, process that you've described, um, how does both a medical person like yourself and a non-medical person trying to find information and navigate the disintegration to some extent of our institutions in front of us because we don't seem to have uh, an adult in the room. If it's an adult, we're not sure because he's being or she's being questioned and, and bullied. And <laughs> so we're not, we're not quite sure who has the flag and what flag is that and how long can we follow that person for? Is it an abyss towards or is it a road to um, sense making? So my, my question to you is, how do you imagine the next stage, both for medical professionals, given what we've just went through, for themselves as a group, as a professional group, and for us watching this professional groups, that we have a bond of trust with, and to what extent do you think that bond of trust has been severely damaged by the behavior of those in charge of this thing? So very good question. And... Um... I like to be positive. I like to be upbeat a because humanity always finds a way to move forward. Um, it seems very tough to me to, to observe how will this work out at the end of the day. So I'll give two answers. One is the initial part of your uh, statement and the question that where do we go when there is not an adult or... I would say when there is an adult with a stick and saying, you would only do this, otherwise you, I'll, I'm going to disown you and I'm going to beat you up. So the way uh, I approach this, because as much as I'm a medical doctor, I was also a victim of the pandemic as well. And I was living through this and I was also trying to do the same thing. And that is protecting myself and the loved ones and humanity and whoever I can. And so my go-to became, my process of staying sane became, number one, wherever I needed to get the information, I will first of all look at the textbooks. The reason to look at the textbooks is something that goes into the textbook needs a lot of research, lots of verification, lots of studies, lots of other books, and so then eventually that thing can become part of a book. Books can have qualities as well. And there, there can also be good books and bad books. But generally medical books or textbooks would have this merit to them. That they would have something which is whatever we could verify with 100% assurity today is in the book. After the book, the second level of further expanding on the understanding will be to look at the studies. Now, when we are looking at the studies, it is important to look at not only just the uh, people's conflict of interest or their uh, funders, but also to look at the opposing studies because we are seeing a lot that there are studies that are for something and then there are equally many studies that are against that thing. And you could see that studies have become dime a dozen. That was the situation before too. It's just more open to the world to see. So looking at those studies that are peer reviewed, that and then looking at their opposing concepts as well would be the next step to understanding or wrapping your head around this. Then the third will be to observe what is happening around us. In, in terms of the pandemic, for example, a few days ago, I discussed this study from Sweden, uh, UMI University, 
about the, and one more university, about the possibility of spike protein going into the DNA, nucleus and impairing DNA repair. And in that discussion, in that talk, I said in the very beginning that as much as this would concern us, we should also look at the people around us who got infected and who got vaccinated. They all had spikes. And if we take this as a fact, then they all should have been severely damaged or dead or, or stuff like that or have cancers. And we don't see them. So we can balance it out. So these are this is one part of the question that how do we approach our own learning? The, the second part of this, that how do we, um, how will we develop that trust which is at this time severely broken? That is where I think about this a lot. I'll tell you a stream of thought this morning the, so I was thinking about exactly the same thing. This, so that means these are common questions in our minds now. And I was thinking that various companies that we think are not doing well, not doing well to us, they are doing well for themselves, but they are not doing well to us. They are made up of us, people in there. The lawyers in there are part of our society. The workers in there who are doing various things are part of us. The ones who are doing PR or influencing, they are part of us. They are us. They didn't come from another world. They are us. That means as much as we can protest what is happening, this is also us who are doing it. So question really is going to be, can medical education, can health care be released from these captures or from these interests. So on one end, these interests have really helped medical sciences by adding research and creating new drugs which can earn money and so on. On the other end, you see that it has a very tight grip as well to not allow anything else to happen. So how would we help do that? And my thought used to be, that there should be an organization or organizations that are made up of excellent doctors, excellent researchers, scientists, who provide information to the world, just like WHO or CDC or FDAs or other organizations will do. And now people would have, I call that an open healthcare leadership system, just like we have so many other open systems nowadays. That's what I thought would happen. That is what I believe should happen. We cannot go to say WHO should change its model. That's not going to happen. We cannot go and say CDC should all of a sudden behave differently. If they didn't behave differently in this pandemic, I don't think they would behave differently for any other thing. Because this is the most severe test that occurred for all of us. So parallel organizations will be the most important part. What I'm seeing is, why I use the past tense, what I'm seeing is that those organizations that are coming up, they are very severely um, attacked as well. And if you would see, the type of attack is interesting because it is not coming directly from these organizations. Attacks are coming from the people. It is us who are attacking each other. And if you notice, again, my opinion, I may be wrong. If you notice, it seems to me that from somewhere, some talking point, points are injected in the mainstream of everything. Mainstream media, mainstream comedy channels, main, mainstream uh, discussion forums. These, uh, these talking points are injected there which then take a life of their own. I don't want to call it propaganda. I don't think it is a war that is being waged. I think it is really money that is being made and anything in the way in the way of path of money that can obstruct that is being quelled. That is what's happening. I don't think it is a um, 
agenda to depopulate the world or reduce the humankind and so on. I don't think it's that. It's money. So that attack is happening. How do humans, we, realize that that is happening and sit down together and have the discourse and dialogue? That, I think, is the missing piece at this time. I am very hopeful that we would reach that point. But I think during this process, some people would get damaged. For example, you're seeing Dr. Paul Marek is being attacked and severely attacked. Uh, Dr. Pierre Khoury. There are doctors on all ends. Let's put ourselves in, let's say, Fauci's school of thought. Then if you stand from their point of view and see, he's being attacked as well. He has to have bodyguards to protect himself and his families. So you look at from any lens, there is a group that is attacking that position. That has to stop. This has to become a decent dialogue of research and understanding, and we should evolve further together. I think we would. We are just in the beginning of understanding that that is what should happen. And in terms of consensus, because uh, if you look at it from the externalities of society, so you think a lot of people assumed um, that healthcare was a big group and then very homogenous. So everybody that was in healthcare, whether you were a doctor or whether you were a nurse, you were pretty much of a certain type very homogenous in some ways because you go through the same training and then you come out and you're expected to do the same thing. Academia, the same. So this crisis has also revealed not not fracture or perhaps different angles within institutions like politi politicians, government, but also things fundamentally related to healthcare professionals. And one of the things that I found it quite shocking during this time was that since this was a healthcare crisis, at the origin. It wasn't a political crisis or a social crisis right off the bat. It was a healthcare crisis. It was called a pandemic. So we were fighting a virus. And the first front line of people fighting illnesses were doctors and their patients. The patients fighting when they get sick. They're not criminal. They got sick. It's a disease. They're not they didn't commit a crime. And doctors fighting and nurses fighting with them and for them. So that's that's sort of the 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 mechanism that had happened previously. And in this particular pandemic, we discovered that the the medical professional seemed to divide into those who said, I will accompany my patient and I will fight. And I was reminded of this with Dr. McKillop, and I hope I did not mispronounce his name, when he took um stage in uh, in America, I think a few months back, a month back. And he broke down while speaking about what had happened, about not, not helping patient. And I, I was, it gave me the, sh the chills when I watched it because I thought, yes, that's what we've all assumed, that doctors and nurses go to battle with us, not against us as patients. And then you watch that in every country, a version of the, this dissociation happened. Some doctor said, you can't go to the hospital, or if you go to the hospital, it's the last resort, and you have to stay home. And, and old folks were stuck in old folks' home and sometimes could not see anybody, including their loved one when they were dying. And we seem to have dissociated the patient, the disease, and the healthcare professional. And I found that very worrisome because going forward with the advance of telemedicine and algorithmic medicine, and Paul Merrick br briefly spoke about that during your conversation, where does, where does this go in a world where we have now to decode whether the doctors that, or the healthcare staff that is in front of us, is it really someone that's going to fight for us and with us? Or is it just a human algorithm for now before it's replaced by full algorithm? So what are your thoughts on that? Very good question. And I think about this a lot as well. You may have uh, seen when I was speaking with Dr. Paul Marek, I was um, placing an image forward that it is possible that tomorrow something diagnoses us, let's say a computer, and then we pick up the phone and call somewhere and say, 
diagnose as this, read me the script for the algorithm, and the call center says, do this, this, and this, and that's it. Um, I have, I mean, that was a bit of a levity or gravity of the situation was such. But uh, I believe that what would happen is machines, AI is inevitable to come in. We would get help with diagnosis. Nowadays, we are getting help with diagnosis for, let's say, imaging and, and such things, labs, a lot. I think we would also get doctors to continue to provide their thinking powers, their deductive powers, their human aspect of understanding and then caring. However, this is correct that the doc medical community, we uh, every community has agreements and disagreements. May that be architects or software engineers or religious groups or you know little groups, book groups in the in the <laughs> communities or medical. There are always going to be the disagreements. The interesting part that happened or scary as well is that in the medical community when those disagreements were shown this time there was a deliberate effort to suppress one kind of messages that i think is the incorrect thing that crept in and if you see from from history, wherever you see, when, whenever somebody tries to stop another person from doing something or saying something, they usually take the position of, this is for your safety or this is for national security. These are the two very common statements used to then implement whatever you want. And so you saw that now as well with medicine, that when a group would stop another group, the group A would say, this is for the safety of human beings that this group needs to be stopped. I think it would have been better to just sit down for one day and hash it out together instead of fighting it out for two years and arrive at a decision point instead of just continuously doing what is happening. So this, I was not expecting that these disagreements will be handled this way. I was expecting disagreements would happen. I used to say this virus did not arrive with a cookbook, with a recipe to say, manage me in this way. So we were all trying to figure it, figure it out. However, I did not expect that people would try to shut down the other ones. That is where we have to correct ourselves. And... Um, the question, really, I'm going to pose that question back to you to hear your thoughts about that as well. I think everybody has a tolerance level on both right and left. For example, I'll, I'll give you my bias instead of pointing out to someone else. My bias is that I do not believe in this is a depopulation agenda. I do not believe a vaccine is a microscopic chip introduced in us. Now that is my um, limit. So if somebody comes to me and says, well, in the, in the um, spirit of an open dialogue, I would like you to discuss why it is not a microchip. I don't even start the discussion over there. I just say I, this is not a topic I want to discuss. That means there is a generalized ev uh, approach. Everybody has some limits. Once again, what is missing is the leadership. What is missing is somebody sitting at a more central place to say, I am going to invite you all. I am going to request you to pre present your point of views. Then we would discuss them and we can discuss together what to discuss instead of attacking each other out in the public and asking people to attack each other. So I think that is where some wisdom is needed from all of us. 
we are fortunate that I think we are reaching a less damaging state of the pandemic, but I think it will also be fortunate if we learn from this for how to have that dialogue. That piece you are correct in pointing out that it is worrisome. Yeah, and and I think um, on on this front, I think you know in 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 metabolic in chronic disease, there's um, there's a lot of of goals that people have to say we must achieve metabolic flexibility, and similarly, I would think that uh, people have been shaken by twenty four twenty eight months um, while still going of fear. Uh, dosed into fear every day, one way or the other, via the media, via people on, on you know, social media, platform doctors, uh, media doctors, scientists, all kinds of stuff. It, it came from all angles. Um, and they've been gradually pushed to do something about their own physical health and their body that was originally medical procedures and then very quickly became something that you went and do in a parking lot or in some cases in a school or and and then so they have now been told different things that we know did not come to fruition that the mask worked and it didn't and then it did again and then if we did xyz whatever that is then things will be better and they will stop and it didn't and we wouldn't lock down and we did and so on and so forth so i'm wondering that flexibility that we were hoping to achieve physiologically, have we not completely broken it intellectually to the point where going forward, in the case, I hope not, in another pandemic, much more mortal than this one was. This one was bad, but let's assume a mortality rate of Ebola at the scale of what SARS-CoV-2 was. Would we still have intact some sort of intellectual flexibility to say, oh, now I know who to listen to. I know this community is okay. I know healthcare staff, whatever they say, I need to move and I need to move as soon as they said it. I don't need to have that hesitancy to stop and say, wait a minute, do I need to pause and, and wait for data to come through in order to follow what they're telling me? Or can I just pretty much blindly go with my trust and say, they know better, I should follow. So I'm wondering whether you also have a sense that there is a shaken sense of trust from the healthcare staff, especially the younger folks who are coming to become doctors, the medical students, um, and to what is their now role in society, given what just happened. That is a beautiful question and actually quite a thought-provoking issue. The reason is I struggle with that on a daily basis when I am preparing something. I struggle with that to say this concept that I'm going to share with with the folks, with the cool beans, with the audience, the person who's presenting it, is that person credible? The concept, does that um, pass the litmus test of being valid or legit? How do I know it is valid? We're talking about something microscopic. Do I, do I go to the researcher and say, show it to me? I cannot. And so if I am, after looking at 10,000 studies and reading and discussing, if I struggle on a daily basis, then of course that means people are also struggling as well. Maybe not as much as me, but there is a struggle. And it is an issue to say, who would we follow? I have a ray of hope in this one. And that is that during this whole process, it is possible that we have all collectively learned how to acquire, digest, process, and apply information. How to tell from good to bad to some extent. How to say this group to work with and this group not to work with. How to understand that there needs to be a, um, you know, leadership positions where they are more neutral for all dialogues to allow them to happen so that the truth can be presented. And I think if 
the current generation, including me, if we cannot make that happen, then the youngsters that are looking at it, hopefully would say, when I am in this position, I'm not going to do this. When I am in this position, I would allow a more flexible and a better environment. So it is possible that we today, in such positions of, in such places, we have various pieces, you know, places on the chessboard where we are sitting. Maybe when the younger generation comes in and they have seen us and seen where we went wrong, maybe when they sit in those positions, they would do better because they've learned. So that, to me, it seems, yes, we have a problem now, but future would definitely be better because there are youngsters who are learning from it. Question that you said, if there was another pandemic, that scares me, that SARS-CoV-2, imagine if SARS-CoV-2 becomes SARS-CoV-3 and the whole cycle starts again, then I think at least in the given environment, my extrapolation will be that people will become even more intense with their positioning. Those who would say that vaccines are causing harm would say, see, I told you. Those who say that vaccines are causing benefit and everyone should quickly get the vaccines would say, see, I told you and you didn't take the vaccine in time and now we have this problem. Lack of leadership once again. So solution is going to be from the leadership. Leadership has to have an open mind. Even when they have this agenda to say, give vaccines to everyone. Even then, having a dialogue with the, with the voices that are raising concerns is an important part to streamline the whole process instead of creating this chaos where people are being mandated and they are being fired and their livelihood is being threatened and their self-respect is being threatened, their feeling of freedom is being threatened, that itself is a negative outcome and it can be very easily corrected by doing better leadership. And again, I'm not talking about political leadership. I, I'm talking about medical leadership. This is, a, as you said, this is a medical problem first. Medical leadership has to provide leadership. Political leaders would follow them if there is such a leadership available. So, Dr. Bean, to conclude this, sadly, because it's an hour long, I would uh, love to be able to discuss these uh, intellectual mechanism and intellectual crisis to some extent that we're in, as well as the pandemic crisis, for longer. But unfortunately, we have this hour, and I know your time is precious. Um, so I would like to um, ask you two questions before we conclude. One, which is, uh, to people out listening to us in their car, walking, doing some other things, and to help them with something tangible that they can leave with, which is from a medical educator as well as an MD and from a scientist uh, as myself. Every day, pandemic or not, what is it that someone can do for themselves physiologically and intellectually to be showing up to the world in shape enough to critically make a decision the next hour, a very important decision. It could be a decision about whether or not they should take the vaccine or it could be a decision about whether or not they should do whatever next for their family and for themselves. So what would be the advice that you would give them, both as a medical doctor and as a humanist, to be able to show up to this very complicated world that we're in and have a, a hope that they can make it through physically and mentally to fight this um, kind of war that we're in, which is not just a, a healthcare war, um, and to see, it, to see themselves through and to see a loved one through. And that's, that's, that can be my first question, and I'll ask my second after that. Very good question. So, uh, and of course, I can, there are so many things. So I'm going to go from medical to more of the human part later on. From a medical point of view, at this time, all of us, we have to be extra careful for our hydration. Water is the most important part. 60% of us are water. 
water helps bring nutrition, takes bring oxygen, take carbon dioxide away. So hydrate yourself very well, number one. Number two, provide nutrition to yourself so that your immune system is able to fight whatever comes its way. Control your diabetes. Uncontrolled diabetes means immune system cannot function correctly and that is a problem. Try to be as relaxed as you can. We all know various ways to relax ourselves. Some people like music, some people like walks, some people like talking with friends, family. Whatever way, watching TV, talking, doing the, listening to the podcast, whatever makes you happy, do that. The reason is that when you are stressed out, we release epinephrine or stress hormones. Epinephrine in turn reduces the function and number of natural killer cells, which in turn reduce our innate arms capability of handling infections and attacks. So when we are, when we are relaxed and happy, epinephrine level goes down. That allows natural killer cells to perform better and be in better in quantity and we can handle SARS-CoV-2 and other infections better. If you have not done rigorous exercises, then don't do rigorous exercises, do light exercises. Rigorous exercises also cause epinephrine release because it is a stress on our body. So light exercises, yoga, walk, light run, and then slowly move up from there. So take care of yourself, take care of the hygiene, take care of the people around you. That's one. On the human part of it, as much as there is this confusion and there is this grouping and there is this um, fight, please realize this is how I see it and it may be useful or not. Everyone in your opposing group or you in your group, everyone is eventually trying to figure out how do I save myself? How do I save people around me? So when you realize that their intent is actually correct, their application of that may not be according to you, but maybe according to them, then it becomes easier to figure out how to work together because the common goal for all of us is how do we protect ourselves. And finally, I come from a very humble background, from a broken home, from a childhood where my thought was maybe if I can become a car mechanic or something like that, I would have achieved a lot. And from there to here, so much blessings I have gotten. And one request that I would make to everyone is, please realize that every day when the sun rises, world brings you the life and energy and warmth. Sun is the lifeline for everything in the world. And it is given to you anew every day. So universe is doing you the favor every day, right in the morning, giving you resources and energy. And what I've seen is if you just persist and don't walk away, you don't fail. So failure is usually when you walk away from something. So persist, 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 and keep adding value for others. As long as you think I wanna do something for myself, it becomes derailed. When you want to give to others, you would stay on track And one final comment, whenever you feel lost, please put your loved ones in front of you. That would give you a direction from where everything starts becoming correct. So Florence, thank you very much for having me. And for your audience, thank you very much for listening to me. That's great. So let's finish by something a little bit more personal, which is what we ask all of our uh, guests here. And... um, to have achieved uh, what you have achieved and to have supported so significantly, at least I can speak for myself for the past two years. You know, I, I don't think I minimize, I, I, I've just hyperbole this and saying that you've salvaged my mind for sure uh, because of this window into sanity that I had pretty much every day that I could link it while running. Cause I, I do listen to you while I'm running. Um, so what, is your weird sauce to have enough juice as so to speak to be able to have done that and extended this 
uh, toolkit, this gift to humanity, as you like to put it in your videos, uh, to all of us around the world listening to you. And what is, what is that weird sauce uh, for your life, Dr. Mubin Syed? So beautiful question. Thank you very much. And I would love to talk about the weird sauce. I'll give an example. When I started medical college, I came from a background where my parents were not able to send me to a school. So I only went to school for one year in 10th grade, then to college for two years, uh, high school equivalent two years, and then medical college. And when I was in the medical college, I was really passionate to get good grades and study well and be a great doctor and serve. So I went to my teacher and I said, I want to have a distinction, meaning more than 80% marks or 90% marks or getting a gold medal in something. So I said, I want to have a distinction. How do I do that? And he looked at me and he said, to have distinction you have to be distinctive. So if you are going to be an average student, then you are not going to get a distinction. Go work hard, be distinctive in your work. So although I don't think that I have achieved that kind of uh, excellence, however, when I started working for COVID, through which many folks now know me, the basic idea was, could I do something at this critical time for all of our humanity, which is distinctive? Could I offer gifts that are useful and valuable? So my weird sauce will be that if you want to have a distinction, become distinctive. Dr. Mabin Syed, it was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you for making the time and we wish you all the distinction you merit for saving us all out here uh, every day, one video at a time, one interview at a time, one drawing at a time, including the drawing you do without the relation to medicine, which we also enjoy. I speak for myself, but I'm sure the audience will concur. Thank you again, and uh, we wish you again strength and uh, good health, of course. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for, uh, for putting me in front of your audience and same best wishes to you as well. If this conversation stopped you in your track, share it with your network. You never know whose life you might change for the better. Thank you for listening. Stay curious about our next guest and stay curious about life. <laughs>